Two weeks ago, we left off studying the book of Acts. We're going to jump right back in this morning. And we should be out early. That way, hopefully, they'll be ready for us downstairs. Um, the last verse we focused on, or the, the main gist of two weeks ago, was Acts 17, 11. It says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. And it's basically a challenge for each one of us to make sure that we know God's word enough so that when we hear something that's not true, we understand it. We've probably heard this analogy before. The Treasury Department, those who are charged with uh, investigating fake currency, instead of studying all the different types of fake currency, they spend their time studying the real thing. They know the real currency inside and out so that when they see something that's not true, they instantly recognize it. And that's how we should be with God's word. We should know it well enough so that when we're presented with something that's not true, we should know it right away. That was, that was Paul's charge to them. So last week we talked, or two weeks ago, after Paul was in the city preaching to them, they kind of shoveled him off to Athens to protect him from the local riffraff. And in verse 16, it picks up there, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I remember, you ever been in a place where it's, you just walk in, you really feel the absence of God? I remember when I was in, in Pittsburgh, we, I was in sales, and I dealt with a lot of colleges that were down there, and, and the one college that I dealt with was Carnegie Mellon. How many are familiar with Carnegie Mellon, CMU? I walked into their main office, and I just felt this oppression when I walked in. And it, I don't know, I couldn't explain it. It just felt like there was such an absence of God in this place. It just kind of, whoa, it felt like a cold chill going through me. And that's how I think Paul felt when he walked into this town. He saw all this idolatry going on around him, so much of a lack of God. Now, let's take a quick look at the situation that he's in in Athens. In Athens. Athens was one time a famous city known for its temples, the Acropolis, the Parthenon, and the city itself was named after the Greek god of Athena. It was a city known for its culture and education. However, that was in years gone by, and the significance of Athens was declining. It was becoming a second-rate city. It was no longer influential like it had been. It had a famous university and famous buildings, but as one commentator put it, it was a city of cultural paganism, nourished by idolatry, novelty, and philosophy. Athens was basically living on its former glory, how it used to be. They had less than 10,000 inhabitants at that time and nowhere near where it had been in its heyday. Now, even though they had these universities and these buildings, their influence was being taken over by Alexandria of Egypt. And so they were losing all that they had. They were basically shadows of their former self. They were just living in, in name only. And I, I read that paragraph and I thought, does that sound like a lot of the major universities we have today? Most of the, the Ivy League schools were actually founded by Christian organizations for the promotion of missions, for the promotion of being able to be taught the Bible. And as we read about them now, where have they been? They're all falling away from where they were with Christ years ago. It also tells us that Paul was greatly distressed about the spiritual condition. You ever walk into some place and just feel a burden for the people that are there and for the atmosphere that's going on? 
I walk into businesses sometimes or restaurants and I, and I just look around at all the people that are there and you wonder how many people know Christ in this place. And in a Walmart or a restaurant, you look at all these people enjoying themselves, not knowing anything. How many of them know Christ? And you get kind of a burden for them. You want them to know more about the Lord. And the word that, that is used, the word distressed, is the same word for provoked or angered. So what does Paul do? Paul does what Paul does best. In verse 17, it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Now, while he's there, he's still waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to get there. But instead of just waiting for them, he just can't sit around. He's got to start doing something. So he goes into the synagogue on Saturdays, and he uses the time that he's waiting for his companions to get there to reason with those who really want to know God. They're God-fearing Greeks, the Bible says. Verse 17 continues. It says, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happen to be there. Now, our class on Wednesday night, which was canceled because of snow <laughs> last week, and I'm hearing that we're getting another snowstorm this Wednesday. I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned it, but I'm not a big fan of winter. But you know what that tells me? Something must be going on Wednesday night for it to be canceled maybe twice in a row. I'm not sure yet. But our class on Wednesday night is basically talking about evangelism one-on-one. -on -one. How to talk to people, how to be relevant, how to be able to minister to them where they are and lead them to Jesus. And that's what the lesson on Wednesday night is beginning to be. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's going into the marketplace, it says, and he's reasoning with the people that are there. It doesn't sound like he's preaching to a crowd, like I'm doing. It's more like he's going one-on-one, -on -one, or maybe one-on-two or one-on-three. He's talking to them one in a relationship basis, and he's trying to reason with them and talk to them about the Lord. Maybe he's at a food stand. Maybe he's at, at a marketplace or uh, some kind of local business. Undoubtedly, many people were there doing business. And the, the picture I get in my mind of this type of marketplace, have you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Nobody's ever seen that movie? Okay. There's a, if you saw, there's a few scenes where they drive into this marketplace, and it's basically a big circle with all these buildings run, people selling their wares in every little, every little stand. That's the image I get of Paul walking from stand to stand, talking to the people that are there, reasoning with them about the gospel. Even though the town was full of idolatry, all these idols that were around, it didn't deter him from talking to people. You ever get, what's the word I'm looking for, nervous about talking to people because of maybe the atmosphere you're in? That there's a whole, whole bunch of things going on that you don't agree with and you're afraid to talk. You're afraid to maybe bring up the subject because you fear of reprisal or of making fun of, whatever it is. Paul, in spite of all the idolatry, didn't stop him from talking one-on-one, -on -one, going from person to person. Verse 18 says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. You ever talk to someone and they argue with you about your faith? And I can tell you because I was one of those people that argued most of them are arguing not because they want an answer. 
They want a fight. They want an argument. Because they will ask you questions, and I used to do this, they will ask you questions that are, that are hard to answer. How come there's pain and suffering in the world? Why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? All these questions that there really is no answer that's going to satisfy them. They just want to stump you. And that's exactly what was happening with Paul here. These people weren't really trying to get the truth. They were just, the Bible says, dispute with him. Now, who were these folks? Well, the Epicureans were followers of Epicurus. His teaching was that feelings and emotions trumped everything else. And that sensations and feelings and, and all the things that are around that we can see, touch, taste, that is the truth. That's how we should determine truth. And if it's pleasurable, it must be good. If it's painful, it must be bad. Pleasure was to be the chief goal in life. Freedom from pain, disturbing passion, superstition, fears, anything else. In other words, if it feels good, do it. That was their philosophy. It went basically on how you felt at that time, what your emotions were dictating to you. How many have realized that your emotions are very fickle? And your emotions really can't dictate truth to you. You ever been... Now, I like to use this, ex this example, car shopping. How many like car shopping? Not so much. Why? Because every car you get into, you love, right? Because it's nicer than the car you're getting rid of. And so you, you have to go to this car lot or wherever you're going with the attitude of being able to walk away. No matter how good this car feels, if they can't meet your price, you have to walk away. If they can't meet your budget, you walk away. Well, if you go by feelings... You're buying everything on the lot, knowing that you can't afford most of them. So feelings are very subjective to the situation you're in, and that's how the Epicureans, where they were just, hey, whatever feels good today, that must be right. And we know that feelings aren't true all the time. Epicureans were also materialists and atheists at their core. So there's no outside forces to dictate what's right and wrong. A few years ago, you all had the thing about evolution in the classroom, right? I guess that was a big deal 10 or 12 years ago. And the, one of the things about evolution, why it's so taught and, and believed today, in my opinion, is because with evolution, there is no God behind it. If there's no God behind it, there means there's no absolute authority. There's no one over humanity to dictate what's right and wrong. And so evolution tells you, you can do what you want because there's no one outside of yourself to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. And that's how these guys were. There's no, there's no moral absolute. There's no absolute truth. And so their lifestyle is based solely on whatever makes them feel good right now. How many know people like that? That, hey, as long as it feels good and it sounds okay, it's okay with me. There's no right and wrong lifestyles. As long as I feel good about it, I can do it. Not hurting anybody else, so it must be okay. And that's prevalent today, isn't it not? How many people dictate their lifestyles by what they think and feel at that particular moment without acknowledging that there's a God above them being able to tell them us 
what's right and wrong. So that's the first group you have, just like we have today. The other ones were the Stoics, and they, on the other hand, they rejected pagan worship and taught that the entire world itself was God. Now, we call that pantheism today. In other words, everything's God. The tree's God, the cows are God, the earth is God, everything in the world is, is God. And their reality was based solely on logic and reason. The most important thing in your life was to follow what you reason to be right. That you sit down and you figure out your life and you do it the way you think is it needed to be done. No need for any help. You need to be self-sufficient. And we have that today a little bit with the phrase, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't need anyone else to help you. You should be able to do it yourself, which basically boils down to also, you don't need God in your life because you can do it yourself. No need for God. They were not to be motivated by feelings or outward circumstances. Pleasure wasn't always evil or good, and pain wasn't always evil. I would equate them to what we would term intellectuals today. People who would tell you that they're the smartest person in the room and smarter than we are. And there's a lot of them out there. But the problem with that is that attitude begins and ends with what? Pride. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, that's pride welling up inside of you. Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Both of these philosophies existed thousands of years ago, and they exist today. Nothing is new. And to show their contempt for Paul, the next verse says, some of them asked them, what is this babbler trying to say? Intellectuals and pleasure-only people will always show contempt for someone who thinks and feels differently or dares to offer a different solution to life's problems because most often they will think that we are the dumbest people in the room. How many have been accused of, or Christians in general, of checking your brain at the door when you come to know Christ? I used to think that, so I, I know what they're saying. The problem is, we're actually, not because of ourselves, but because of our knowledge of God's word, we know what they don't know. And it's hard for us to explain to them what they don't know when they have no spirit to tell them. You know, the Bible says they don't understand spiritual things because they, they're not spiritual. They need the Holy Spirit to help them read God's word. I remember when I went to college, uh, my girlfriend at the time gave me a Bible to read. And so I'm like, okay. It was the way, if you ever, the old Bible, the way. So I start reading this thing from Genesis, and I get about 10 pages in, and I'm like, what am I reading? And I close it and put it up in the shelf, and that was it. Why? Because I wasn't saved, and I didn't understand what I was reading. The way you understand God's word is to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And when these, and the people who show contempt don't understand what we know. And sometimes we think that they should, but they don't, because the Holy Spirit hasn't enlightened them yet. How many of you, when you walked away from either at the altar or wherever it was you got saved, it was like a light bulb went off in your head. It was like, now I get it. Now I understand. I don't understand everything, but I know what people are talking about. I realize that Jesus is real. Verse 18 goes on. It says, Other remar others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods 
They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the word babbler that they use is actually, it actually means seed picker. It was a slang word for parasites and ignorant plagiarists. So when they say he's advocating for foreign gods, they're saying that he is just misplagiarizing what others have already said. That this Jesus and the resurrection isn't something they know, they can't understand it, they're not intellectual, they can't see it before them, so it must not be true. And since it's about false gods, it must be demonic. Because we don't know them, and by association, they must be of the enemy. If we don't understand them and we can't figure them out, and what they're teaching us just doesn't sound logical, they must not be true. You ever try to explain something like that to someone who doesn't believe yet? How do you explain, and this is still a good one, that God always was, that God never had a beginning. I can't grasp that, but it's true. How many try to explain the Trinity to someone? And just as logically, when you talk about the resurrection, how do you explain that to people who don't really understand spiritual things? And that's what Paul was facing in the town. And verse 19 says, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. Now the Areopagus was named after the god of thunder, and is actually a big courthouse is what it was. And it wasn't a real we want to know the truth meaning it was a sort of we're going to make a fool of you in front of everybody else type of meeting and verse 20 it goes on and says you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean now we have a change of attitude with the people that are listening to him the people bringing him wanted to ridicule and deride him in front of everybody else however now he's in a court the general population brings him to the court, and now you have the town's leaders that are there. And what they're doing is they're making Paul present his case to the town leaders. The people that brought him want to make a fool of him, but the town leaders understand a little bit where he's at. They don't want to debate him, and they want to maintain their, their stance of being a town of jurisprudence and politics. And they took seriously these type of accusations. So they weren't automatically going to jump on Paul like the people that brought him. So they wanted to know the truth. They wanted to spend time talking with Paul about what he was teaching, whether or not to find out the truth or not, but they wanted to let him have his say. And verse 21 says, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. How many of you go to meetings at work? You have meetings at work? The best meetings are when you are in and out and you are able to finish and solve an issue. You ever been to a meeting where nothing is ever solved? You go in, you talk about it for hours, and you leave having no resolution to whatever it is you talked about. And you have to come back next month and do it again. And next month. And it used to frustrate me so much when I was in, in Pittsburgh that you'd spend two hours in a meeting and you'd talk about everything under the sun, but whatever was on the agenda never got addressed. 
you walk out going, well, that didn't accomplish anything. All we did was talk about something. We never sat down to solve it. And that's exactly what's happening here. They, they don't want to solve anything. They just want to talk and listen and debate, never coming to a conclusion. I don't know about you, that kind of drives me crazy. Let's have the meeting. Let's talk, look at the issue. Either yes or no. If it's yes, then do it. Then no, then forget it. Don't table it. Don't keep tabling it. Make a decision and do something. And these guys, they didn't, they didn't care. They sit around and talk. I was driving through McDonald's the other day. Now, if you're there early in the morning, there's usually a bunch of retired gentlemen that sit in McDonald's. They, and they have their breakfast there. And, and they're there for like hours. Because I'll come back and they're still there. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking they're probably solving the issues of the world right there. But it's just a great time of fellowship. But I, I don't know. They're not there to solve anything. They're just there to talk and have fellowship. And it sounds like exactly what's happening here. They don't want to accomplish anything. They just want to talk and debate and never come to a conclusion. Now remember, the city was pagan in nature. So they weren't really debating to find out truth. They were debating just to debate. You ever been on a debate team in high school? I could never be on a debate team because A, I can't think fast on my feet. That's why I have all these notes. But I also, part of debating is you have to be able to take a position opposite to how you feel. Say you're, say you're pro-life. You have to be able to defend the, the pro-abortion stance. And I could, never, I could never position myself to say that I believe something that I didn't. Even before I was a Christian, it would be hard for me to stand up and debate something that I knew and I didn't believe. Well, these folks didn't have that issue. They just debated to debate. And it sounds like they would grasp on any fine-sounding issue, and they would just believe that one until something else came along. You know, Colossians says, don't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. When I go shopping for a car, using the car analogy again, I'll, I try to search it out and, you know, consumer report, all that kind of stuff, read reviews. Because when I walk into a, a place, and if, I don't, if I'm not prepared, this car sounds great until I see the next car. Oh, this car sounds great. Then you, you keep doing that until you run out of cars. Why? Because you're not set on what you have. It just sounds good until something better comes along. Rather than being convinced of what you want to get or what you believe and not being deceived by whatever sounds good tomorrow. It's kind of like Believing something as the wind blows, sticking your finger in the air, and whichever way the wind blows is how you're going to believe. A lot of politicians are that way. Now, Paul gives us an example of how to share with people when you get the chance. Now, we've been praying about that. We're praying for God to put us in divine appointments to be able to share the gospel with people and just be able to lead people to Jesus. Well, there's a couple of examples that he uses here that we could maybe use when we do that. The first one is, He's not negative or antagonistic. Now, how many of you, when you talk to someone, you instantly put your shields up and you kind of get negative about something if they come at you? Paul wasn't that way. Verse 22 says, Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, 
I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, Paul could have jumped on them and said, you're a bunch of idolaters, what are you doing? But he came at them in a positive manner. He appeals to what they believe. He's respectful to what they believe and who they are. You know, there's a, a saying out there that Christians are known for what they're against instead of what we're for. Do we get antagonistic? Do we have to defend ourselves and feel negative when we talk to people? We should be encouraging them and loving them and, and meeting them where they are. Jesus met us where we were. And your love for people will draw them in. The second one is know who you're talking to. Know your audience. Verse 23 says, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, he's talking to Gentiles for the most part here in the marketplace, not the synagogue Jews. So he's talking. He's not bringing up Jewish history. He's not bringing up Jewish law. He's talking to them about things they have in front of them that day. And he's able to relate to things that they believe, and he's able to bring the gospel into that situation. He uses what he sees around town. He studies his surroundings. He talks to the people, and he gets an idea of what they believe. And then he uses that as a springboard to be able to talk about Christ. Notice he doesn't even quote scripture. He talks about what they know at that particular moment. And he quotes a book that they probably never even read. And Paul didn't read it. He approaches them on the turf, on their turf, talking about what they seem to be interested in. Number three, he starts from their vantage point. He starts where they are. Verse 23. Now what you worship as something un unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. How does faith and how does the gospel tie into something that's important to them? Your family, your friends, your job, your possessions. How does God tie into those things? How can we share Jesus in a way that's not confrontational but ties into what they believe? Look for ways that the two can go together. Use their thoughts, what they like, what they're interested in, and talk about how you may like the same thing. And then show how Jesus changed your life in that area. Start from where they are. Don't start from where you are at that moment. Verse 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. I'm gonna say that these people are probably no different than people today. That people, for the most part, will ask themselves at some point, where did I come from? Why am I here? What's gonna to happen to me after I die? All those are universal thoughts that I'm sure most people at some point or another, think about that. And so what he's doing is he's trying to explain to them how science can answer part one of that question. Philosophy tries to answer part two of that question. But the only thing that can answer all three of them is the Lord. And Paul explains God in a way that subtly tells them that everything else isn't true. He doesn't tell them that what they believe is false. 
He tells them what the truth is. And by inference, hopefully they receive it with gladness. And he talks about God not being housed in temples. Remember, the whole town was full of temples. So he's not telling them temples are wrong. He's just saying, hey, the God of the universe, he is just so massive, a temple can't hold him. He's not saying your temple can't hold him. He's just saying that no temple can hold this God. He talks to them where they are. He he uses language and situations that they're familiar with, and he ties Jesus into that. 26 and 27 says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Simply put, God is active in the affairs of people. There's a lot of thinking that God just wound up the earth and left. And that God's somewhere out there that we're never going to talk to him. He's just too busy for us. But the point is, God is active in every person's life. That one verse there, he says, he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. How many of you ever thought about living in a different time? I've loved, I mean, time travel, I'm your guy. I will be the first volunteer to do time travel backwards. I don't want to go forwards. I'm going to go back. You ever think you were born in the wrong era? I should have been born in whatever year. Well, the Bible says, no. He determined the time set for you and the exact places where you should live. So God put you in a place right now, the situation, the time frame, your age at this time, God picked for you. Because there's something that God can use you for that he's not going to use anybody else for. And it says, God did this so that men would seek him. People are always interested in in what's next, what's the future hold. Well, the only person who knows the future is God. And the only way to find out the future is to read God's word. He doesn't go into specifics, but we do know what's going to happen at the end. He works works in such a way that men should be drawn to him. We've all heard the expression that everyone, everyone wants to worship something. Man has a desire to worship something. Whether it's the God of the universe, whether it's a house, whether it's a job or your family or something other than God, everybody worships something. Point is, we should focus our worship not on the things that are here, which is basically idolatry, We should focus on the God who gave us everything. And also tells us God is easy to access. He's not far from each one of us, it says. You should reach out and you'll find him. It's not a mysterious thing. It's not something you have to be led to do. The Bible says we all have the innate ability to know that there's a God. And as soon as we call out to him, God's there to answer us not hard to do. God doesn't live in temples. He's huge, but he's big enough to care about each person. You know that we prayed this morning, part of a verse that says, what is, who is man that thou art mindful of him? It's an Old Testament. I think it's quoted back in Hebrews again. But you think about the truth of that. Who are we individually 
out of the billions of people that are on the earth today, all the billions who have ever lived, why are we important to God? How many of you have more than one child? Your first child, man, you just pour your love into that baby and then you find out you're going to have a second baby. I don't know about you, but my worry was, how can I love the second one as much as the first? It's just not possible. But guess what? It is, right? And you love them the same. The same. There are no favorites. Not which one do you like better, Dad. There are no favorites. You love them the same. That's exactly how God is. Even all the billions of people, he loves each one of us exactly the same. As if you were the only child. Verse 28 ends with this. It says, for in him we live and move and have our being. It's God who gives us everything you need. He gives us life, breath, food. The Bible says in James that every, perfect, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Everything we have that's of any worth at all, God has given to us. In him we live. We live. The, the fact that we woke up this morning is because God allowed us to wake up. We move the ability to move around anywhere you want to go. God gave you that ability. And have our being is basically everything else. <laughs> everything we have, everything we own, everything we are is because of God. And he's trying to tell the folks in Athens that in spite of all the great things, the material things you have here in all these great temples, the God that can give you what you're missing is the God I'm talking about. It's not found in all your temples, your universities, or your buildings. It's found in a relationship with Jesus. And that's exactly, that's the gospel then, that's the gospel today. That everything we have, everything we are is because of God. And the only way to feel satisfaction and release is to come into a relationship with Christ. Personal relationship. And we used to have a lot of kids come to our house, both youth group and, and little kids. They were great kids, we loved them, but they weren't our kids. We couldn't tell them what to do, what not to do. They weren't our kids. That's the way it is with God the Father. Until you become a child of God, you're not one of God's kids yet. You may come to God's house, you may play in God's field, but until you come into a relationship with him, you're not God's kid. There is no fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man thing. The Bible says that the only way we become children of God is to by accepting Christ as your Savior, as the one who freed you from sin, delivered you from sin, saved you from judgment. That's the God that we can have a relationship with. Would you stand with me as we close this morning? you would bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. Most of us know the truth that the saying that says God has no grandchildren. And that simply means we don't have a relationship with God simply because our parents do or our grandparents do. 
The only way to have a relationship with Christ is to be a child of God. You have to make the choice yourself. And as Paul said in there, and all the material things that we have here, all those things really don't mean anything unless you have that relationship. Because in Christ is where you find joy and peace and happiness. Not, that's not what we come for, but that's the result of our faith. When you accept Christ's payment to forgive you of your sins, what comes with that is the joy and the peace that God only can provide. If you're here this morning, you've really never given your life to Christ. You've never said, Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Cleanse me from my sins. Make me righteous before you. Take away all my guilt. As we sang in this song this morning, are you weighed down with the burden of guilt? If you know you've never done that before, you've never accepted Christ for your sins, and you want to do that this morning, that's the reason you're here. God brought you here for a specific purpose, as we read, a time and a place just as this. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now. All right, I'm going to believe that all of us are now committed followers of Christ. The whole point of this lesson, this sermon this morning, was that Paul was able to go out into the marketplace and talk to people one-on-one or in a small group, and he's able to relate to them the gospel of Christ. He's able to use situations in their lives that they understand, they can identify with, and Paul used what was there to lead them to Jesus. Now we'll find out later that a few did. Not many, but a few. Paul was faithful to do what God called him to do. The results of that effort are up to God. God called us to be faithful, not necessarily successful. We may witness to people every day and no one comes to know Christ. We are being faithful. Noah preached for a hundred years while building that ark and no one except his family believed. But Noah was still counted as righteous for being faithful. Each one of us has been given an ability, places we work or shop or eat, where we have the opportunity to talk about Christ to someone. They may not like it. As Paul found out, they may ridicule you, call you a babbler. But then again, Maybe not. Maybe that person is there needing you to tell them what they need to hear. And they're waiting for someone who knows Jesus. Father, we thank you. We thank you for saving us, for counting us 
worthy not because of ourself, but because of Christ's love and sacrifice for us. We're only here because of the grace of God. And Father, all we can do is thank you and worship you for that. Now, Lord, I pray that you would just fill each one of us with that burden, that sense of urgency. Set up divine appointments, Lord. Help us to be focused upon the world in leading them to Jesus to escape, as we talked about last week, the reality of hell. Father, we love people. We want them to know you. So I pray that you would help us to do that. Now, Father, we ask you to bless our time together downstairs this morning. Thank you for the food you provided. Bless it. Use it to nourish and keep our bodies strong. Allow our time of fellowship to be great and allow this to be a tremendous opportunity for the young people to see the power of God in action as we support what you're doing in their lives. Now, Father, I commit that time to you. I commit each person here to you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. If you signed up, I'm sure they're waiting for you downstairs.